Welcome to the Drive with Dave podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Miller at drivewithdave.com. I get to drive some of the fastest, coolest, sexiest cars on the planet. Ever since I bought my first Ferrari, I've been immersed in the global car community. Now I travel the world uncovering the hidden gems in luxury transportation and connecting with extraordinary car enthusiasts. Join me as I find the most exotic cars, meet the owners, and get the behind-the-scenes stories of the world's most exclusive rides. A couple of years ago, I journeyed two and a half hours east of Chicago during an early autumn cold snap to visit the Beck Spider folks, makers of the Porsche 550 replica, and a meeting with father and son Kevin and Kerry Hines. The two of them have continuously upgraded with Chuck Beck started many years ago. You remember the car, one of the original 90-built James Dean fatally crashed the little bastard, his Porsche 550 in the California desert in 1955. Today, the Porsche 550 is resurrected in a little town in northern Indiana. As faithful to the original as possible, Kevin, Carey, and team are constructing beautiful replicas. If you poo-poo replicas, you entirely miss the point of experience why the Porsche Spider is hallowed, not just by the Porsche community, but by car aficionados everywhere. Today, electronic wizardry allows almost anyone to be a great driver, but this Porsche Beck Spider replica makes you sit up, pay attention, and remember that the only electronics on board are used to start the engine. So how did this whole thing come about? Who's behind it? Where is it going? I have with me Carrie Hines, son and vice president of SEI Manufacturing. SEI Manufacturing is located in northern Indiana, a couple of hours, as I said, from Chicago. Besides having his hands on the day-to-day production, Kerry also enjoys planning every build directly with the client in order to help them build their dream. Kerry Hines, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Dave. Good to, good to uh, speak with you again. Now, Kerry, I understand before we get started that you were just up in the mountains doing something with some sort of cars. Tell me about that before we get rolling. Yeah, we went out to the uh, Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix, where the uh, our GTS, the uh, tribute car to the 904, uh, much more modern suspension and Porsche 911 drivetrain, uh, we that's been accepted into vintage racing by several of the sanctioning bodies. Uh, so we run the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix. Uh, the last oh four out of the last five years, we've actually won our class. Um, this year, they actually asked us not to bring it back, so we decided to show up with a. Uh, uh, E85 twin turbo 911 that Randy built for a friend of ours in California. Now, I understand, too, that the reason that they, they asked you not to come back was you were a little too successful? Yeah. The, last year, we, we beat the second-place GT40 by about 20 seconds. Um, the, the previous year, the, the, we passed uh, – we, we, we surpassed that mark, and, uh, you know, they actually came to us between the, the two races – and asked us to slow down and make it look like a race, uh, which is the first time I've ever experienced that at an event. Uh, the year before that, they had us in definitely the wrong class, uh, but we lapped the second place car. You know, that's so funny, Kerry, because every time I'm out there driving at a race or just on the track, all my friends ask me to speed up. So <laughs> it, it looks like it looks like we're in a race. <laughs> One of the other things that I wanted to say as an aside is in our pre-call, we talked about Porsche coming down uh, on you. And, you know, obviously, I know you guys build the 550 Spider replica and everything. And I will try to uh, understand at the end of the show exactly what they've told you what you can and can't use but um i might lapse into what i've already got in my notes we'll make sure that we uh do everything correctly so porsche doesn't knock on your or my door 
Un- understood. Understood. Yeah. Well, you can call it what you want, and, and you can deal with Porsche directly. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Porsche trademarked the the numbers three five six five five zero and nine zero four, uh, and contacted us and said that we could not use those numbers. That those were the, that they were that they own those numbers now, uh-huh. uh, and they they've only done that recently. Um, and we were fine with that. So the so the car we dropped the five fifty, the three fifty six, and the nine zero four, and the cars became simply the Beck Spider, the Beck Speedster. Uh, and the Beck GTS. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, we don't sell or install and never have any anything that has the Porsche logos or trademarks. Uh, so uh, w- that really wasn't an issue, but they wanted to make sure that we weren't. Uh, but beyond that, uh, you know, we, we've always had a great relationship with Porsche. I don't know if you remember when the Boxster first came out in sure. the late 90s. Sure. Yeah. The, uh, they, they did a commercial called Holy Schmoly, where a guy wakes up from a coma and and walks out to the garage and gets in his original 550 and then passes a Boxster on the road. Uh, and both the, both the drivers look at each other and say, holy schmoly. Well, the, the close-up shots were the museum car, but the museum wouldn't allow them to drive it on the street. So they actually borrowed one of our cars for the street shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we, we've had a good relationship with them. We've done things like that numerous times. Um, and so, so it's, it's never really been an issue, but, uh, their, their legal department wanted to make sure that they were protecting their trademarks and rightfully so. Likewise, we protect our trademarks. Uh, you know, there are other companies in this industry or other individuals in this industry, uh, that know that, that, that Beck brand brings a premium and about one or two times a year, uh, we have, we have cars show up on eBay or online, uh, that are badged as our cars that are actually not. So, so I, I, on a completely different scale, but I understand protecting your trademarks. Well, let's, Gary, let's wind back to the business. You and your dad, Kevin, started this business, and how did it happen? Did did your dad get into this, and then you followed, or where? wind yeah, you back it, to the beginning? Sure. It started on two different fronts. Uh, my, my father uh, was working in Brazil for Volkswagen of Brazil and TTB, Trans Trading Brazil, uh, one of their export partners uh, back in the 70s, uh, and one of the things you have to understand about Brazil in the late seventies was that the import duty on something that wasn't built in South America was 300%. Uh, So there were 51 companies in the city of Sao Paulo building replicas uh, because it was cheaper to build it from scratch than it was to buy it. Hmm. Uh, Hell, there was a company building a replica of the Fiat X one nine of all things. So, uh, uh, so dad was representing those companies at, at that time. And, Around the same time, early 80s, Chuck w- had just sold his dune buggy sand rail company Chuck Beck, and started uh, doing – I'm sorry? Ch- Chuck Beck. Yes, sir. Chuck uh-huh, Beck. Uh-huh. Uh, he had just sold his, his sand rail company and was starting to, to clone the, the 550 Spider. Mm-hmm. Uh, fast forward a few years to the 1985 uh, Vegas Auto Show. My father had a 356C replica that was built in South America and Chuck had his 550 Spider built in California at the same show at the same price point. Uh, and, and for somebody who knows Porsches, you know the 356C is a much more complex car, mm. um, a lot more evolved for, you know, for, for comparing the two. Uh, so Chuck approached my father and said, hey, how in the world are you selling this car at the same price point that I'm selling mine and making any money? Mm. Uh, and dad said, well, I manufacture in South America. Uh, Chuck replied, I've never been to Europe. Uh, and, uh, and Dad said, well, we're, we're not going to Europe, but I'll take you to South America and show you what I do. Uh, and they partnered up. So they partnered up in the mid-80s. We uh, opened a factory in Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, and ran it clear into the mid-2000s. And, and, and then what happened? Into the 2000s and then suddenly what? 
Oh, when, when I joined the company about 15 years ago, one of my goals was to bring production completely back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a control freak, and uh, producing uh, nine at a time for shipment, uh, I would have nine on the assembly line, nine on the water, and nine landing here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I discovered a problem, I had to deal with it 27 times before it was corrected. Um, and not only that, uh, you know, I wanted to improve the quality of some materials and, and whatnot, uh, so again, my, my goal was to bring everything back in house and, and over the last, let's say 10 years, I've, I've slowly done that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, uh, uh, the other question that I have to ask you is why Indiana, you guys are in the middle of, well, not nowhere, but you're, you're a ways away from, um, uh, anywhere. You know, people think that, and, and we are the fiberglass capital of the United States here. Um, yeah. We have, we have every major RV manufacturer within about 40 miles of here. Um, some of the larger distribution houses, Composites One and Ashland, have major warehouses within 20 miles of here. Uh, our local workforce is well-versed in fiberglass, paint, and body from the RV industry. Uh, so we have a huge work pool to pull from. Um, and it just made sense. Okay. Um, all right. Um, I, I had no idea that, uh, and what's the name of the town again? Well, we're, we're in Bremen, mm-hmm. uh, and we're about 20 miles from Elkhart, uh, and Elkhart is, uh, the trailer and RV capital. Okay. So, so somewhere along the line between your dad and Chuck Beck, you made the, the, you had the thought that you could, you could make the leap into this business, bringing it back to the United States, getting out of high tariffs, all the rest of those kinds of things and be successful here. What made you think that? Um, you know, I, I don't know that I thought it through all that well. Okay. Uh, uh-huh. I, I actually, you know, I grew up with wrenches in my hands. I grew up building, building cars and, and working on my own cars and, and being in this industry. Uh-huh. And then I rebelled for several years, went off to college. Uh, was a biology chemistry dual major with a minor in physics at Youngstown State and then transferred to psychology at Ohio State. Uh, and I wasn't out of college for maybe six months. And I realized that I was passing up an opportunity to not only do what I love, but to make a living at doing what I love. And, you know, until you're in that situation, you hear people talk about something like that all the time. Uh, but I guess I guess when you grow up in that situation, you can take it for granted. Uh, so at that point in time, I decided to, uh, to try my hand at it. Uh, and actually the, the, the true story is that my father and Chuck had taken positions at Avanti in Villarica, Georgia, mm. and everything was kind of sitting dormant. And I contacted them and said, Hey, do you mind if I play around with it for a little bit? Uh, they finished their contracts in, at Avanti and, uh, I had, I had kind of started revamping things a little bit, uh, and we all got back together and just, uh, you know, moved forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about Georgia. Isn't Chuck Beck, if memory serves, isn't he still down in Georgia? He is. Chuck, Chuck is known for being in California, but he was actually born in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when so when he took the took the contract uh, at Avanti, uh, which you know my father got hired on as the CEO, and he and Chuck had a longstanding joke that if one of them ever got a real job, they'd have to drag <laughs> the other one along with them. Uh, so uh, Dad brought Chuck in as head engineer. Uh, and he bought a house out in Georgia and he loved it. He was so happy to be out of California, to be out, out from underneath the thumb uh, of all the regulations and, and rules and uh, decided to stay out there. So he opened up a small shop, uh, bought some land, and uh, he runs what we call our R&D facility. And uh, even at 80 years old, uh, he, he works on new projects for us. Yeah, like uh, putting a Lamborghini motor on a, uh, on a motorcycle? 
Uh, yeah, in fact, that was uh, that was during a uh, a little bit of a lull in new projects, and uh, Chuck had that motor sitting on the shelf for oh ten years, if not longer, yeah. and uh, called me one day and said, "Hey, I'm going to build a motorcycle chassis around this V12 Lamborghini." Uh, and I said, well, I, I know that you are no matter what I tell you. So have fun. Well, I, when I have a little time on my hands, it seems that I turn to reading or the beach or something. So here's a guy that's almost 80 years old and he goes out and stuffs a 12 cylinder Lamborghini motor onto a motorcycle. That's kind of interesting. It, it is. And it's a, it's how a lot of our projects have started out. Let's talk a little bit about your cars. And I want, I want to go on record right now as, as telling you that personally, I love the stuff you guys do. I, I have come home so many times. I remember when I came in the door after visiting you and your dad, I told my wife I wanted a Beck Spider. I had to have one of these cars, that little black one that I went out in. Absolutely yes, gorgeous. And I, I think for the money, I'm trying to, maybe I'm wrong, but a real 550 Porsche, four or five million bucks. Yeah, they've, they've hit that $5 million mark these days. Good God. And, and I'm thinking for for a, the fraction, a little teeny fraction of, of that, I can have something that looks and feels and acts, except maybe better engineered, certainly faster. I, I, I want to, my disclaimer is I love the stuff you guys put out, but it seems to me your cars uh, are, are modern, modernly functional, obviously less expensive than the real thing. Tell me about, tell me about your products. Sure, sure. You know, and they are exactly that. Yeah, we, we do we do two variations of both the Speedster and Spider, uh, and and they all start off with with our own chassis, which in both cases is a three inch, hundred and twenty thousandths wall DOM tube chassis that we make here in house, uh, and then you know hand laminated composite body. Um, but the the where we really shine in terms of you know the the chassis the chassis of the original 550 was 80 thousandths wall, um, and over the years they added all kinds of bracing to it and, and weight to it to try to stiffen it. Uh, Chuck looked at a couple of areas that he thought he could improve, and then bumped it to 120 thousandths wall and wound up with a chassis just as stiff as the birdcage chassis with a lot less weight, mm. uh, which is one place that Chuck is just really really a genius at is making something extremely lightweight and extremely fast. Uh-huh. Uh, took that same idea and did it did a chassis for the Speedster. Uh, and the, the benefit of that for the Speedster was we were able to open up the floor, give the car a little more leg room without changing the external dimensions of the car. So uh, it made it made it fit the modern guy just a little bit better. So we take all those new all the that that newly constructed body and chassis, and and it's designed around you know your choice of either an air cooled drivetrain just like the original cars had, uh, mm-hmm. you know push rod flat four, uh-huh. uh, or for the last eight or nine years uh, a water cooled Subaru, ECU OBD two plug electronic throttle, uh, you know fuel injected just turn the key and go kind of uh, package, mm-hmm. um, and and I guess one of the big benefits of all of that in addition you know to, to just the fun of them is that you can do whatever you want and you're not devaluing a half million or five million dollar original car mm-hmm. um, speaking of the of the GTS uh, you know Chuck took that and went a step further and said I want to make what Porsche couldn't make in 1964. So he, he did a monocoque folded stainless steel chassis that, that makes it very much like a monocoque uh, but then created, CNC billet uprights and suspension geometry based on the Chevron B16, uh, but it, to accept 911 spindles and 911 bearings front and rear, uh, and then and then 
pickup points for any of the air-cooled 911 power plants. Uh, so we, we've got a car in that case that weighs 1,700 pounds, mm -hmm. has you know four and six piston calipers, uh, and and a base of 300 horsepower when you start with a 993 motor. And, you know, a little bit wider in the rear so we can, instead of having, you know, six inch wide bias ply tires, we've got 12 inch wide modern, you know, modern tires or slicks, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, but, you know, took, took that car and, and kept the styling, but, but did what Porsche couldn't do in 1964. And all of the stuff, when I, when I was in that little car, and this was a Subaru motor, obviously a water-cooled motor. Um, it seemed to me that uh, uh, the car absolutely flew. And if I look at the old, what, what Porsche would call their 550 Spiders, compared to the replica of that car that you're putting out now, what's the difference in horsepower? The, uh, the original 4Cam on a good day was about 120 horse. Now, I, I understand they squeezed a little bit more out of them later on. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're 175 horse on a bone stock Subaru, uh, you know, naturally aspirated. Uh, and then some of the track cars that we built with build with a uh, 04 STI motor are 303 horsepower. I have two questions. First of all, what's the reactions your cars get from the general public? You know, the the, the general public with the Speedster and Spider uh, is from everybody from little kids to grandmothers. It's thumbs up and yep. smiles. Yep. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of them remember the car. It just it just draws that kind of attention. Uh, and as you and I talked in the in, in the pre-call, uh, I've owned a lot of uh, very expensive exotic cars over the years. I, and I can tell you with all seriousness, there is not a single car that I've owned, whether it be you know the same cost or 10 times the cost, that has drawn the attention that a Speedster or a Spider will draw. Um, it's, it's uncanny. And I tell my clients that all the time. Uh, in fact, uh, I'll share this with you. My, my wife uh, does not like to go out in a Speedster and a Spider. It's not because she doesn't like the cars. It's because we don't get to spend a lot of time together because of my work schedule. Uh, and, and if we pull into a gas station in a Speedster, she knows we're going to be an hour, hour and a half, yep. uh, you know, uh, talking about the car. She wants to take the pickup truck and let's just get to where we're going. <laughs> wants to take the Volvo. And speaking of you, you kind of cracked that door open. I'm going to go there too. You've got some original uh, standard stock uh, Porsche built cars. What do you have in your garage? Uh, I have a 68 911, uh, 91 C2S, uh, 98 911, 57 Speedster, uh, 65 356 Cab, uh, 65 356 Coupe, uh, and a bunch of old VW Beetle convertibles that we drug out of California uh, a number of years ago. Uh, and uh, oh, a handful of other oddball stuff, uh, some some things like a Toyota Sarah, Nissan Figaro. Uh, I love those. Uh, I love those. I said, uh, love the Figaros. Saw one in Montreal a couple of years back. That's just an adorable little car. They are. They're they're neat, and, and a lot of the stuff that I like is just stuff that nobody else has. So uh, that's the reason for some of those goofy things. So I think me, like the rest of the general public out there, just adore those little cars. I haven't. I don't think I've seen a replica Speedster. But you know, I live between Chicago and California, and here in Los Angeles, where we are this morning, it seems like every third or fourth car is a Porsche. Certainly, a ton of Speedsters, a couple of replica 550s. They have to be. But how does the, uh, this is a duh question, how does the Porsche crowd feel about your replicas? 
You know, it's it's hit and miss. Um, we we get a lot of guys that love them. They say, "Hey, this is this is the the the, the next best thing." Uh, yeah. In fact, when when we displayed at Shenley Park a few years ago, uh, had a guy we were they parked us next to a guy with an original uh, GSGT 356, and he had about a half a million dollars into that car, uh, and he stood there all weekend pointing at our car, telling people, "This is the way to go. You can drive this one." Um, and so we do. We get a, we get a lot of a lot of enthusiasts that love it. Um, you know, as as we talked about the the trademark, we don't we're not trying to fool anybody. We're not trying to make sure. you, make somebody think that you're driving a Porsche. Um, we're giving you an alternative to 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 what most people can't afford uh, for an experience. Uh, so so they they appreciate that. They respect that. You also get a lot of guys that turn their nose up at it um, and, and oh, it's not a real Porsche. And, and you know, you get some people that. You know, uh, the, the kind of snooty and, hey, this is a, a Volkswagen or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it, it, it takes all kinds. Uh, and those are typically the, typically the guys that I like to drop the clutch on and leave in the dust. And, uh, <laughs> I understand. So yeah, that, that's another door you opened here. Your typical client, you use the T word. What, uh, what does he or she look like? What the, who comes to you for these cars? You know, it used to be the the 50, 60, 70-year-old close to retirement, uh, midlife crisis uh, or late life crisis. Remember the car when they were in college, couldn't afford it then, can't afford it now. Right, yeah. Uh, And, and, you know, I thought that 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 crowd was coming to an end and didn't know what was going to happen. And in the last five or six years, we've seen this real kind of surge from 30-somethings and 40-somethings that know the know of the car they obviously don't remember it from back in the day but but they've seen it they've probably seen it in 48 hours or doc hollywood or something uh-huh. sin, uh, sin city exactly yeah, they've yeah. researched it they realize they can't afford it and they come to us and they really appreciate the fact that they can have a modern drivetrain air conditioning heat that kind of stuff uh so i i didn't anticipate having this younger crowd that that was so passionate about these cars uh, as i am uh but it, it's there Mm-hmm. And do you do you find that um, there is a uh, a typical car that they want? So you you have three products. I would imagine that was at one time a, a Porsche 904 racing car. It's probably at the bottom of that list. That's kind of a specialized weapon. So if it falls between what you build, tell me what the what what's the percentage? Is it 50 50? Is it uh, yeah, 30, 30, whatever the other 30 is. <laughs> What's yeah, so, your, what so do you build? Speedsters and Spiders are split about 50-50. Now, with the GTS, we only build for a year. It's it's a three-month build time, start to finish. I've got two guys that do nothing but GTS race cars in production, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what it takes them. And we keep about a year and a half to two-year backlog on those, uh, and I really have no interest in pushing it any harder or further than that. Uh, so the rest of our production is really split about 50, 50, uh, it comes in waves. There's weeks that you can walk in here and there's, you know, nine spiders and three speedsters. And there's, uh, there's times that it's the exact opposite of that. Uh, but, but they really are split pretty evenly. Um, we like to joke that if you show up here with your wife or your girlfriend looking at a spider, you're leaving in a speedster. Uh, and, and that, that just seems to be the case. The spider seems to be a, a lot more raw. Uh, you're a lot. You're more wind in your hair. It's louder. It's harder to get in and out of. So the the, the male client is typically looking at a at a spider. Uh, but he, like I said, if they show up with with a significant other, they're leaving in a speedster. 
Okay, so if I'm going to go there, let's say I, t- I get a green light from my wife, Laura, and she says, okay, you badgered me, you lobbied me, you're going to go down to uh, Indiana and pick out a car. I walk into your shop, I'm coming in there, and I pick a car, and it's probably going to be a 550 between you and me. But how long is it going to take? What are the steps along the line? What happens for you? What happens to us when we're talking about air-cooled versus water-cooled? How do you help me through that process? Okay, so let's say you've made a buying decision. I've got to tell my my chassis builders which chassis we're building. So the very first step was we're going to figure out if you if which is right for you, air cooled or water cooled. Okay, I'm going to find out if if you are mechanical or if you have the desire to pay a mechanic uh, and what your skill level is and what your desires are. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition, creature comforts, and we'll get back to that in just a moment. But the air-cooled stuff is extremely simple. I, I, I would have zero fear of jumping in any of my air-cooled cars and driving to you in L.A. right now mm. with nothing but a duffel bag full of uh, very select metric tools, spare throttle cable, spare clutch cable, test lights and fuses. I'm good to go. There's nothing I can't fix on the side of the road with the exception of a major catastrophe. Okay. Um, however, that car is more maintenance intensive, and chances are it's going to require me to do that at least once on the trip. Mm. Okay. Uh, the Subaru is the exact opposite part of that. The Subaru is fuel injected, modern ECU. You jump in and you drive. If there's an issue, you, you can pull into anybody that can look at a, a Subaru computer, Subaru dealer, if they'll, if they'll take it, uh, and they can tell you what's wrong. And it doesn't happen nearly as often. It just runs. It just goes. Um, so, so we'll figure out which is going to be the best fit for you. From that point, you know, it, it's, Kind of a waiting game. We can figure out what you want to do now. You can think about it for a little bit longer. Uh, But let's say we're at the point where you want to spec things out. We'll talk about creature comforts. Do you want to do air conditioning? Do you want to do heat? Uh, And if you you say, yes, I'd like air conditioning, or my wife says we have to have air conditioning. (laughs) Yeah, you know my uh, wife. (laughs) uh, (laughs) And same thing with heat. I'm also going to steer you a little bit more towards the Subaru. The air-cooled stuff uses heater boxes uh, around an exhaust, just like the old 356, just like the old Beetle did, and it's pretty anemic. Mm-hmm. Um, my father, I think, best describes that heat as an asthmatic chip wheezing on your ankles. Uh, and <laughs> I've had a couple I of Fiats that, that uh, you're bringing me back to the old days. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> hey, I, I drove a Beetle in Youngstown, Ohio, you know, negative 30 with a foot of snow, and I'm scraping the inside of the windshield. Good so, God. Uh, I, I, grew up, I grew up with that despite my age. Carrie, uh, is there is there a is there a split? Do you see a trend between the air cooled and the water cooled? And in both those motors, does everybody want the most most horsepower? They want the biggest. What's what's the trends there? So the 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 Subaru is taking lead over the air cooled, and it's done that slowly. If you'd asked me four years ago, it had been twenty five percent Subaru. Today, it's probably about sixty percent Subaru. Mm. Um, and the cost gap is closing as well. The quality air-cooled parts are becoming harder to find and more expensive. Uh, so it's it's not as expensive to, to make that leap to a to a Subaru motor. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that gap is closing a lot. Um, it's uh, it, it's I think it's where this industry is going into the more modern, almost resto mod style builds. I spent some time down with the people in San Diego, Zelectric, and one of the things that they're doing with older VWs and the microbuses, and now a now a, a 1973 911s Porsche was to was to electrify these cars. They're using techno the technology out of a Tesla and stuff. Do you ever see that happening with your cars? So I've I've been down that road a number of years ago. 
um, we were we were approached by a couple different companies that wanted to do electric versions of our car. Uh, it fit their needs very well. It was lightweight with a very stout platform. Um, so we we what we did for them was we built an e roller, which was essentially our normal roller minus all the internal combustion engine components. Okay. Um, and at least what we found. Uh, was and and I guess let me back up for just a moment and say I didn't do a lot of the electric conversions. I hung out, watched what they did, learned a little bit about them, but decided that, that was an avenue that I I did not want to become an expert in. Mm-hmm. Um, so so these outside shops did those conversions. Um, but what I what I typically found was was a couple of things. Uh, and, and no offense to the to the e community, to the electric other people that enjoy electric cars. I drove one of my own for a summer and it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It just didn't meet the criteria that people thought it would, at least in our experience. Um, you take a $30,000, $35,000 roller and put $30,000, $35,000 worth of battery technology into it, you've got a $70,000 sunny day electric car. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the guy that was looking for that was the guy that was worried about the 4 and $5 a gallon gas mm-hmm. uh, that just didn't it just didn't meet what their needs were in my opinion mm-hmm. um, and the, the second part of that is gas goes back down to 225 uh, and the phone stopped ringing nobody asked about nobody asked about electric anymore whatsoever uh, so we still get requests for these electric rollers and we still build them uh, when people want them um, unfortunately the shops that did the conversions uh, for us and and you know they, they, they did conversions period. Uh, that was their main business. None of them are still open. You know, Carrie, and thank you for that, because uh, I know electrification has gotten to be a really hot thing, especially here in, in California, where the the, uh, the weather is open, the roads are occasionally open, where people can zip around. And it isn't meant to save trees. I think it's just meant for a different, as we approach electrification of, of everything, I think all, all, one day we're all going to be driving electric cars, whether we want to or not. But I want to go back to something that you and I had talked about, or I'd seen on your website, that your cars don't necessarily have to be delivered to a client turnkey. Is that right? They actually anymore, or none of them are, are turnkey per se. And what, what that breaks down into is we build rollers. It is up to the client to, to provide the engine and transaxle. They also have to take, take a role in the installation of said engine and transaxle mm-hmm. uh, in order to meet EPA requirements. So what a client will do is they'll either the, – we'll build the roller. They'll either receive the car as a roller and, and take it from there or they'll subcontract as a, an outside shop to do the engine transaxle installation for them the car will get returned to us for full testing and then they at that point they receive a turnkey car or we also opened up a bed and breakfast here in town where we have a small garage with a lift you can stay there for the weekend one of my techs goes out there and oversees you installing your own engine and transmission so maybe you're like me and truthfully we're entirely different i was a bio major with a chem almost a chem minor in college and uh, you say, are you are you a good mechanic? Uh, in my case, I know a lot of good mechanics. So do, do I have to install this engine or can I count on your tech to help me out with this? What uh, what goes? So the, the installation of either the air cooled or the or the water cooled power plant is two bolts on the nose cone of the gearbox and four bolts on the motor. Uh, and and if it, it's literally that simple. Um, so uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. if. if if you know the pointy end of a screwdriver, you, you can do it. 
Yeah, that's why, that, like I said, I've become very close friends with mechanics <laughs> all of my life. Yeah, I can find the pointy end of a screwdriver. It'll take me a half an hour or so. Um, <laughs> so you, may, you may need two days to install the motor, but yeah. well, you'll get it done, I promise. Uh-huh. Okay, let's talk about your business business. I assume when you started this whole thing or when your dad started this whole thing, that uh, business was a piece of cake right from the beginning. Were there stumbling blocks? What would you, would you come across? You know, they kind of did this as, as Chuck does with many things. Chuck at least started this as a kind of a personal project uh, because he wanted a 550. Uh, and his attitude once he met dad was, I hope we can find 50 people that want this. Mm. Um, 2,550 cars later, we're still doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, uh, he, 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 you know, he underestimated his market by far. Um, <laughs> it was a lot easier for those guys in the beginning. Uh, Chuck and my father had no competition. Uh, I joke with them that they were the Henry Ford of Porsche replicas because you could have any color you wanted as long as it was silver. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And you, could have, you could have any interior you wanted as long as it was red. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you wanted options, you put them on yourself. Right. They created their own competition. So by the time I got into this, there was a couple other competition that would do the custom things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they still weren't. Uh, and they were slipping a little bit because of it. So uh, uh, that was one of the things that I brought to the company immediately was – I brought back the custom fabrication and the options, and uh, you know, the, as we grew, I started manufacturing my own parts overseas. So as you walk through my warehouse, there's nearly, nearly two million dollars worth of parts here that are taillights, turn signals, windshields, windshield frames, engine grills, gauges, absolutely everything that we need. Uh, you know, I secured uh, the manufacturing for and and you know made sure that we could have the best quality that was available. Your your company special edition, as you call it, and I think that's your website. Is that the corporate name? Uh, yes, yeah, special edition is the corporate name. Special edition was a company my father and Chuck started, oh, many years ago for special projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the first special project was the Ford Taurus S or the the Ford Festiva, the the SHO, the Shogun. Uh-huh. Uh, if you've ever heard of it. Oh yeah. So so how many people now do do you guys employ? What's on your so we have, we have 14 employees, uh, and for me, I mean, that's the largest this company's ever been. When I talk about the old days being my father and Chuck, it was my father and Chuck. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, they were they were the, the bookkeepers, the janitors, uh, the fabricators, assemblers. They did it all. Um, Randy Beck, Chuck's son, joined the company and and worked with them a little bit later, uh, and still works with me today. He's one of my, he's actually runs the GTS program for me here in Indiana. Mm. Um, he actually he keeps a house in in uh, Upland, California. Uh, and, or I'm sorry, in Ontario, California. And, uh, he's here for four months, goes home for a couple weeks, comes back out here for four or five months. Uh, but yeah, so we have 14 full-time employees here now. Um, we used to subcontract a lot of our stuff. I subcontracted my paint and body work to a shop here in town. It got to the point where I was 90% of their business. So I just bought the company. Okay. Uh, Likewise, we we subcontracted our upholstery to, to, a to a shop here in town. You know, once I got production back here to the U S uh, and eventually uh, ended up hiring the, the guys that ran that to, to come work for me full time. Um, so uh, I, I have, have slowly built, you know, my my key guys uh, from local talent that we used to use uh, as subcontractors. So these are mechanics. These are body men. These are. Um, uh, That's it. We've got we've got a pair of laminators. We've got three body guys, two painters, one upholstery guy uh, and then four full time techs and then the office crew. 
Well, I've been down to your shop, of course, like I said, and uh, I thought it was amazing. I think uh, the shop was neat and clean and, and just the opposite of what I would think of what you do, the type of, of stuff. And I know you have competition, but I'm not really sure based on my my research that you guys have serious competition. But and Carrie, I've got to ask you this too. Five years from now, what what's business going to look like? You know, I, I hope to be doing the same thing. I, I think our, you know, since 2008, we've been on a one-year wait list, uh, and and it stayed steadily at that. So I, I really I really don't anticipate that to be much different. Uh, we have some new product that we're working on that that's going to further the the modern drivetrain under under an old shell uh, kind of theory. So I hope to be producing that, uh, you know, full tilt. We may be back to uh, you know the electrification. We we may be doing some some other things, and and I'm willing to grow with what the demand is, and and uh, you know uh, kind of follow the trends and, and see where it takes us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I hope to be doing exactly that. Uh, I also hope to have a bit more help from the government and from uh, uh, you know from the the special bodies. You know we we have this low manufacturing uh, you know low volume manufacturing act that just came out uh, that was supposed to aid what we do in our business uh, and essentially in, in very short uh, that allows us to manufacture less than 250 cars a year I believe it is and not meet any of the safety requirements uh, except for those of the year that we're replicating and we do have to meet emissions um, and that would be with us installing engines and transmissions as, uh, as us building rollers we don't have to, to qualify for that mm-hmm. uh, but but going back to that you know us being able to get a 17-digit VIN and, and install our own engines and transmissions, you know, this was going to be a great thing to come. Well, it turns out that, that this bill must have been written or sponsored by GM uh, because the, <laughs> the, the only motor that's approved for this program is the Chevy E-Rod. So if you don't build a V8-powered car, it doesn't apply to you. Hmm. Uh, I hope to see that change in the future. And we've actually talked with Fuji Heavy Manufacturing, who is the parent company of Subaru, uh, and, and have tried to work, uh, you know, with some of their guys. Uh, unfortunately, you know, my my the, my potential of uh, 50 engines a year didn't really entice them too much. So, in other words, I think you're telling me that the guys you have assigned to Washington to lobby for this bill are are, are a smaller group of people than than GM has out there. Just slightly. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I think that that's really, really funny. Um, uh, I think that people are looking for something different these days in cars. This has been my take when I, when I live in when I'm in Chicago, when I talk with clients both uh, in Los Angeles and in here. It, it seems like everybody wants something different, and you can go out and buy. Certainly, with a lot of money, a very few people can buy a real Porsche can buy even a Speedster, which are even out of sight these days, uh, much less a 550. But it, but it seems to me that the younger group of people, like you said earlier, are out there saying, wow, I want something different, and you've got something absolutely unique. If you had to advise your old self, and you joined the company, you joined your dad, was it eight years ago, did you say? About 15 now, actually. 15, I'm sorry. Um, what would you do differently, or what's the one thing you think you'd do differently, knowing what you know today? You know, I, I, I probably would have followed my gut a little bit earlier with some of the, some of the things that we're doing in terms of, you know, the, the water-cooled power plants and, and some of the, some of the, the parts that I've developed in, in the recent years. Um, I, I think I probably would have tackled those a little bit earlier um, and, and developed those a little bit further uh, uh, earlier. You know, it was, 
I, I kind of got the, the, the response from my father and Chuck that, oh, nobody's going to want that. And why would you do that? And uh, eventually that turned into you can't do that. And that's what sparked me to do it. Because once you tell me I can't do something, we're figuring out a way to do it. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, so I, I think I, I probably would have jumped into that just a little bit earlier. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really happy with the way things have been running. Uh, I, I really can't complain too much. I, uh, well, I, I tell you what, on a, on a personal level, uh, well, I, I here, here we, here I, we, here we go. Go ahead. Go uh, ahead. Let it all out. I, I, so, so I, I'm, I'm in here five o'clock in the morning, six, six o'clock in the morning so that I can get out of here at five, six o'clock in the evening, uh, because I have three children, one that's now in college. Mm. Um, in the early days I was in here at seven o'clock in the morning till midnight, one o'clock in the morning. So uh, some of that drive allowed me to, to move forward as quickly as I did. But I think I probably would have tried to spend more time with the family. Uh, the, the, you know, I, I, as sad as that may sound, as, as weird as that may sound, uh, you know, my 20 year old daughter grew up very, very fast. Yeah. Um, I don't think I can answer that. I'm pretty good with cars and pretty good with business, but boy, raising kids, um, hasn't been my forte. I, uh, fortunately, unfortunately, I'd never been down that road. So I have to live vicariously through others. I listen to what you say, take it all with a grain of salt and move on. So my, last, my, my last question for you is somebody wants to contact you. They listen to the show. They see you on TV. They see you at a racetrack. How does somebody say, I want to go drive one of those cars. I want to test drive. And I imagine you have some test drives available. We do. We do. So, uh, you know, the contacting me directly, you know, through our toll free number 866-396-BECK, B-E-C-K, you know, that rings you right to the office. BeckSpeedster.com or BeckSpider.com gets you to our website. Um, So, you know, those are the ways to to find us like that. Visiting us at the races or the shows. Uh, and you know, we have clients all over the world that love to show off what they have. Mm-hmm. Um, the, for the most part, you know, if you call me and say, Hey, uh, I'm in Hesperia, California, and I'd like to fly out and see one, you're welcome to come out and see it. You're going to have to take three planes and an Amish buggy to get here. Uh, <laughs> but one better, I, I can send you to your neighbor who, who's going to love to show off his car to you. And you know, I was going to think with that Amish buggy, have you ever considered a Subaru powered Amish buggy? No, but you know, around here, they call those things alfalfa Romeos. <laughs> I'm going to, I am definitely going to trademark that. I think that's absolutely wonderful. I want to thank you, Carrie, for being such a great guest and talking about your product. I'm embarrassed that I sound so much, so many times like a commercial when I talk about your cars. I've written about you guys a couple of times. I think anybody that's at all interested ought to just get on your website or give you a call just to shoot the breeze about your cars. I hope to be back in Chicago soon, uh, definitely before the fall, and I'm going to try and stop down to see your uh, your your shop again and say hi to your dad. Ed, uh, Carrie Hines, thank you very much for uh, being on the show today. Hey, thank you, Dave. And anytime you're in the area, you know you're welcome. <laughs> At that B&B, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and I won't even charge you. <laughs> thank you, Carrie. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Let us know what you think. Go to drivewithdavepodcast.com and find out how to leave us a review on iTunes. I hope it's a good one. 
which we would very much appreciate. And there's a way to email us your questions, comments, and who you want on the show as well. All the episodes of Drive with Dave podcast are on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and an overview of all the shows with links can be found on drivewithdave.com. Don't miss an episode. When you subscribe to the podcast, your device will be automatically updated with the new episodes, and old ones will be removed after you've listened to them. No work required. And finally, I hope you also check out our bi-monthly newsletter, which will keep you in the know. And you can sign up at drivewithdave.com.